Good morning, church. Great to see you today. Welcome to Union Chapel. Thank you, Pastor Glenn. I trust you received that healing prayer this morning. We believe in the healing grace of God. Trust that you've received his touch. Wednesday night is going to be a 90-minute extended time of singing and praying, just a worship time, and I hope that you'll come. We're trusting that the Holy Spirit will meet everyone at the point of their need on Wednesday evening as we just experience God's presence and ask him to to extend his grace to us. I hope you'll be encouraged to come. We are in the middle of a a series right now called uh, The Secrets of the Kingdom. Today I want to talk about true riches. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 16. If you don't have your Bible, uh, we'll project the words on the screen, of course. I want to read for us verses 10 to 13. These are the words of Jesus, and so we'll see what we can learn to from him today about what true riches really are about. So hear these words beginning at verse 10. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? See the, see the phrase? True riches. And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot, cannot serve both God and money. I mean, God's word, the words from Jesus himself inspire us today and be encouraged by that. If you have your, uh, out, your outline on your app, you can just uh, follow along this morning. I want to do a little more teaching than preaching. This isn't a proper sermon necessarily, but I want to teach just a little bit this morning. I will not take as much time as I did last week. I got some feedback that I preached too long last week, and that's all, not very pleasant. Um, someone was online watching uh, with their 90-plus-year-old 90, 90 grandmother, and near the end of the sermon, she simply blurted out, I think I'm tired of listening to that guy. And so, when, when you're 90, you can say anything you want at any time. So I, I got the message. It got back to me. So I'm sensitive to that. Let's talk about true riches. What does that mean? Money can be used for any kind of purpose under the sun. It can be righteous means. It can be unrighteous. It can be temporal. It can affect eternal purposes. Money by itself, of course, is morally neutral. It's just a means to an end. It's a means of currency, a means of exchange, and it only takes on life and power depending on your attitude toward it, your motives, your heart about it. That's when the energy attaches itself to it. Money that has been submitted to God, of course, can be a blessing and is a blessing. Money that has been submitted to God can be invested in things which are eternal. Now, that's an important concept that... Things temporal now can be invested in such ways that actually impact eternity. If I use money to bring people to Christ, for example, I believe that they will actually greet me in heaven and give me thanks. I I really think if you use your money to affect people, to help them hear the gospel, they will form welcoming committees for you when you get to heaven. I'm expecting this. I, I expect that I'm going to be in a line where I'm going to be thanking people who have invested in the gospel so that it could reach me, people who were praying and giving and going and establishing a witness for Jesus Christ so that my life was impacted by that, and I have people to thank for that investment. 
And I suspect there will be a line of people standing in line to thank us because of the work that we have done together in the life of our church, the influence that that's had for people's eternal lives. And I believe that I believe that people who invest in churches like Union Chapel and ministries and missionaries and church planters and all the all that bringing people to Christ will actually get a welcoming committee in heaven. Uh, listen, if Jesus can turn water into wine, listen, he can also turn money into souls. Amen. Praise God. That's the way it can work. Look at Matthew chapter 6 on the screen with me. It says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Moth and rust destroy. Thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves, rather, treasures in heaven. See that phrase? Treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So he uses this phrase, treasures in heaven, true riches. What is Jesus referring to? Now, this is the point of the sermon. I'm about to give you the answer to the question, what are true riches? And so if you're still with me, then you'll get the point. So here it is. Here's a simple answer to the question, what are the true riches or the treasures in heaven that Jesus is referring to? And the answer is, very simply, people and relationships. True riches, treasures of heaven, are people and relationships. That's it. That's what matters. So when we use money for righteous purposes, we're laying up treasure in heaven. That's why you want to be wise stewards of your money, so you can help people, love people, feed people, care for people, offer Christ to people. Money's not inherently evil. God uses money to feed the, and clothe, clothe the poor, to disseminate the gospel around the world, and that's all good. And there's another motivation for me. Maybe you've picked up on this too. This is another just idea maybe you haven't thought about, but the devil hates it when people give generously because he knows that money can be translated in Jesus' name into souls, and that drives him nuts. And I don't know about you, but that's one of the reasons I'm generous personally because I just want to take every swipe of the devil that I can take. Yeah, he's, he wants to destroy me. Well, have some of this. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. He's out to murder you, destroy you, your life, your family, your work, everything about you. He hates you. And so one way to smash it back in his face is to give and be generous and be cheerful about it and pray for souls to come to Jesus as a result of it. Let me enjoy that for a minute. Now, let me just say, second of all, it's on your outline. Let's talk about tithing just for a moment. In Luke chapter 16, verse 10, I'll look on the screen with you. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. He was unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Now, the Bible says we need to be faithful with a little before we can be entrusted with much. That's the principle. If you have just a little bit of money, then you are a perfect candidate for God's blessing. Because if you'll be faithful with what a, a, the little you have, God will actually give you more. So God's looking for people that he can entrust with much. It's never about how much, but rather about whose it is. Now follow this. The tithe belongs, the Bible uses that phrase, belongs to God. We know it belongs to him. And so the message is we will simply return to him what is his, and God will bless and redeem the rest. And so when the Bible refers to tithing, it does not use the word give. You don't give your tithe, you 
bring your tithe. The reason it's not give is because we cannot give what does not belong to us. We can only bring, bring it. There are only two choices for tithing in the Bible. You can either return it to God or you can steal it because it's not yours to begin with. I don't know why God chose the tithe. It's a tenth, a tenth portion. I think one of the reasons I speculate that God established the tithe so that everyone can participate. Whether you have a lot or have a, a little, you can give a portion, a tenth portion. Last week we talked about first fruits, the firstborn, first place, first things, very powerful truth hidden in plain sight so that God becomes first in our lives. And let me just say this again because it is true that the principal way, the primary way that God determines whether or not you have placed him first in your life is whether or not you are faithful as a good steward with the resources he gives you. I pray a lot. Isn't that an indicator? It is an indicator. It's not the principal indicator. I serve a lot. Isn't that an indicator that God's first in my life? Yes, it is an indicator. It is not the principal indicator. You got to be kidding me. I'm sharing with you secrets that I've learned. This is a secret hidden in plain sight that when you get this part of your life right, the stewardship part of your life right, all the other parts of your life tend to line up. God knows it, and that's why he expresses it so clearly and so insistently. My sheep, the Bible says, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and follow. My sheep hear my voice and follow. So in other words, be obedient to what God says. Giving obediently requires faith, trust. It's adventuresome. It's faithful. It's exciting. It speaks to us about our money, but it also speaks to us about who is first place in our life, who is the master of our lives. Jesus said, you cannot serve God in money. At some point, you have to say, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And let me just say this about this, this influence of the world and the influence of materialism, this, this, this pulling to, that wants to drag us, you know, this gravitational pull away from the things of God that all of us have to deal with in our lives. The only way to break that spirit, you know, the, the Bible describes it as the spirit of mammon. Mammon just means riches, you know, this tendency to rely on riches rather than rely on God, to chase after material things rather than a relationship with God. This tendency, this spirit, I, I want to just offer this to you because it's one of those secrets hidden in plain sight. The only way, well, let me put it on the screen so you can get the statement. The only way to break the spirit of mammon off of your life is to give. That's it. You can't fast it off. You can't pray it off. You can't rebuke it off. You can't beg it off. You can't serve it off. You can't sing it off. You can't scrub it off. The only way to get it off your life is to give. It's the only way to break it. Break its spell, break its power. It's the only way. You say, oh, pastor, please, there's got to be other ways. Listen, you can try whatever way you think best. I'm here to just report to you, if you have an ear to hear it, the only way, there is one and only way to break a materialistic spirit off of your life, and that's to give. Until you give, it will, it will be with you doesn't matter how much you intend, how much you want, how much you desire, how much you pray, how much you surround yourself with people who are givers. 
None of that stuff will break it off of your life. The only way to do it is by giving. Sorry. That's it. People say, the reason I don't tithe is because I can't afford it. You may wonder if I know what I'm talking about, but if you actually believe that I know what I'm talking about, you may wonder further, how does he know these things? And the reason I know things in this particular category that I'm talking about today is because I have struggled with them myself. I've lived through this. So I, so I not only have an idea, I have an experience that I can draw from. And so, and so the reason I don't tithe is because I don't have any money. Been there, done that. Okay. Well, look at, look on, look at the screen, and I'm going to make a statement. Hope you, get, hope you can bear it. You'll never be able to afford to tithe until you tithe. Because tithing is what breaks the curse and opens the windows. <laughs> That's Malachi chapter 3. Here's the secret of the kingdom. Giving is what breaks the curse off of your life and opens the windows of heaven. I'd love to be able to live under an open heaven. Got to give. That's how, that's how you do it. That's how, that's how it works. You know, if uh, my car needed to go in the, to, to the shop for repairs and, I, and you're my friend and I know you're going out of town for a few days, I say to you, my friend, hey, how about I drive you to the airport, pick you up when you get back, and in a few days you're gone, I'll have a car because mine's in the shop. And, and you say, great, that'd be fine. So at the end of the few days that you're away, you come back home and, I, and I've picked you up at the airport and I walk up to you, my wife's with me, and I walk up to you and I said, Beth, my wife Beth and I want to give you this car. And you say to me, are those the keys to my car? <laughs> and we say, yeah, but we, we want to give you this car. Here are the keys. <laughs> and you say, that's my car. You can't, you can't give me my car. You can only return my car to me. See, with the tithe, we're not actually giving the tithe to the Lord. We're simply returning it to him. It all belongs to him. Well, let's go to the third thing, because as you know, there's a 91-year-old grandmother listening. (laughs) And let me just talk about mammon just for a minute, too. Jesus certainly makes a striking contrast between the spirit of God and the spirit of mammon. I mean, he's, he's talking about this constantly in the Gospels. So mammon, as I mentioned, uh, is a, me, um, a word that is Aramaic in, in origin that means riches. And at the heart is an attitude that says, man doesn't need God. Now follow this. We're self-sufficient. This is what the spirit of mammon tries to tell us. You don't need God. Trust in riches. Pile up some stuff. Trust in that. Mammon promises those things that only God can actually give us. We, we live in a materialistic culture and we wrongly believe, we're taught this all the time, that money is very important for security, significance, identity, independence, power, freedom, you know, happiness. But listen to me, money can't provide any of those things I just mentioned. Not one of them. Same again, security, significance, identity, independence, power, freedom. None of those things are available because you have money. Those things can only come from your relationship with God. It's, it's, it's just very important. It's no wonder Jesus said you can't serve both God and mammon because the spirit of mammon stands in direct opposition to the spirit of God. 
Now, 1 Timothy 6.10, this is the Apostle Paul talking to a young evangelist named Timothy, and he says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now, that's misquoted and misunderstood because people assume that money's evil, but the love of money, the wrong attitude and relationship with money leads to no good. So what we learn from Jesus about this is it's not only a, like, a, uh, like a value, cultural value, money as a priority, but there's actually a spirit attached to it. There is, there's a spiritual power behind it to influence it. So, it. so the spirit of mammon talks to us all the time. The spirit of mammon says things like, if you have the right credit cards, the right clothes, the right car, the, you live in the right neighborhood, you know the right people, then you will be happy. Then you'll be fulfilled. Mammon tells you that if, that if you had more money, people would listen to you. Your relationship problems would go away. Life would be sweet. You could do what you want. Go where you want. Live the way you want. Your life would be happy. And sometimes the spirit of mammon gets on Christians. It's impossible to avoid. The subject of money is constantly with us. It's a, it's a means of exchange. We have to deal with it every day. It's always there. And so it's, it's understandable, it's, it's predictable that it would influence us. And sometimes the spirit of mammon can get on Christians. So that a Christian might even say, if I just had more money, I could really start helping people. I'm sorry, is this too confessional? <laughs> Remember, Jesus never told anyone the answer to life's problems is more money. Not once did he ever say that or come close to saying, if you just had more money, all your problems are solved. I have said out loud in my life in front of my wife more than once, if I just had more money, all of my problems would be solved. And she looks at me and goes, <laughs> you're crazy. Because that's it's not true. I do say it more tongue-in-cheek than I used to, but... So let me put this statement on the screen. I mean, it's just so obvious, but let me just say it out loud. Money is not the answer to life's problems. God is. Yeah. That's, that's just not preacher talk. That's true. That's not just the right thing to say, you know, in a religious meeting. That's the truth. We come under pressure and the thought will come to us that we need one of two things to happen. Either God needs to change my circumstances or he needs to drop a, a boatload of money on me. Either he's going to have to change, change the deal the way it's all set up or he's going to have to give me a bunch of money. <laughs> and the fantasy usually involves winning the lottery some of you went out and bought one of those Powerball tickets recently because it was, you know, a gazillion dollars. You didn't win, did you? You had a better chance of being struck by lightning. You're not going to win. Or some kind of contest or sweepstakes. How many of you get sucked into this HGTV giveaway a new house sweepstakes that happens every year? Does anyone get involved with this? It's interesting. I think I'm the only one who must be getting these emails. You know, it's this house that this, this, uh, this network has built in the mountains of Colorado this year. It's worth $2.7 million, and you could be the lucky winner. I did some research on this, and 
they've done this for about 20 years, and only three people have ever claimed the house. And the reason for that is because you can't afford to pay the taxes. You can't inherit a $2 million house. <laughs> now you've got to pay the taxes on the house, and no one can do that. So, so they just uh, they sign over their rights to the house, and they take some cash offering as well. It's, you know, it's a third of the value of the house, but it's, you know, you've won something anyway. Or the other part of the fantasy is, do I have a rich uncle somewhere I don't know about who's going to die and, you know, and fix me up? So the, you have to fantasize about some kind of windfall coming to you in order to figure out how to, how to, how to get, it, get it all sorted. I have personally been propositioned more than once about multi-business opportunities. My friend, my late great friend Mark Beeson and I years ago were propositioned by a very successful businessman and he gave us a very compelling presentation. This is back when Mark and I were in our t- late 20s. And what he wanted to do was influence, uh, uh, leverage our giftedness and influence with people to make a, a lot of money. And if, if we had said yes to that, chances are really, really good. I would, I mean, today I would have more money than God, probably. It, it would just be a big pile of money, no doubt. And it wasn't the only time that I was propositioned like that. I've been propositioned three different times to, by business persons asking me to be involved. And I've said no to all of those by God's grace. My gift, as it turns out, is to help lost people find Jesus and to help Christian people understand his word. That's, that's my purpose in life. That's why I'm here. That's why I breathe air. So my, the pitch to me, the temptation from the spirit of mammon to my life has been when you become rich, think of the people you could help and the way you could support the ministry of your own church. If you had more money, you could really make a difference. So that's, that's the temptation that comes to my, my mind. But here's what I've discovered, and it's very simple. God can help people without using money. Shazam! When we start thinking that most of our problems can be solved by having more money, it's a sign we're under the influence of the spirit of mammon. Are you learning anything? I... I, I you can, if, you'll learn, if you'll learn something, you, you'll be able to practice some of the secrets of the kingdom of God that tend toward success, uh, influence, prosperity, and all that. Let me just uh, go to this last point because, as you know, I'm in a hurry. And it's very simple. It's, it, we'll call it poverty and pride. Mammon has friends. Their names are poverty and pride. A spirit of poverty, listen to me now, I'm going to help someone, a spirit of poverty always leaves you feeling awkward about God's blessing. I suffer from a spirit of poverty. I know that may surprise you. For example, a spirit of poverty will cause you to be ashamed of the blessings of God. If you give, you will be blessed. That's how it works. If you give with the right motive and the right heart for the right reasons, you will be blessed by God, period, end of sentence, full stop. You can't do anything about it. The devil can't do it. The world can't do it. Your friends can't do anything about it. If you give in the right spirit, you will be blessed. And so the devil's attempt is to try to make you feel bad about that. 
guilty about that, ashamed of that. It's not good. And if he can't make you feel guilt about being blessed of God, and by the way, don't, don't do that. Stop, if you're guilt, stop it. Stop feeling that way if you can't. So if you're not susceptible to the trap of poverty mentality, the enemy will use the opposite approach. And that's the spirit of pride. Pride says, you've earned all this stuff, your hard work, your ingenuity, your talent has made it happen. Thus, you should be proud of the blessings that you have received. Both poverty and pride have a common root. Now listen, they get us to focus on stuff rather than on God. Pride says wealth comes from hard work. Poverty says wealth comes from the devil. Pride says you should be proud of what you have. Poverty says you should be ashamed of what you have. Poverty feels the need to justify purchases and possessions because it equates blessing with evil. It says, I can't let you think I spent very much money on anything because that would mean I'm not very spiritual. So how do you respond when someone compliments you on the watch you're wearing or the clothes that you have on, the outfit? Pride says, it's imported from Europe. Poverty says, this old thing, I got it at Target. Half off. After holiday sale. Pride tries to make people think we paid more. Poverty tries to make people think we paid less. Let me put this statement on the screen. It's getting really quiet now again. If you've been blessed by God because you've done things his way, stop feeling guilty. Don't be ashamed of having a heart God can bless. Don't be ashamed of that. Be happy about that. When I turned 40, I entered into the midlife crisis. Everyone goes through a midlife, if you live long enough, you go through a midlife crisis. Everyone goes through it to one degree or another, men and women. No one's untouched by it. You get to halfway and you just go, what's, what's, what's the meaning of all of this? And so, so there's some confusion that comes with that. And I turned 40 and I had some confusion as well. I had to talk to older friends, you know, and mentors who, who really helped me and gave me perspective on all of it. And, uh, but in my confusion, I had decided I was going to do one of two things. I was either going to buy a really fast car or I was going to take a mistress. So I went, because that's what you do, right? So I went to Beth and talked to her about it. I said, I said, baby, I'm down to two options. I'm 40 and I'm confused. I am either going to get a, a fast car or take a mistress. What do you think? She said, I think the car sounds like a really good idea. <laughs> I actually stood up in church one morning just like this, and I, I listed these two options, and I asked the congregation what they thought I should do, and they all said, get a car. <laughs> so I took everyone's advice. <laughs> but I had this problem. I've already confessed to you I had this poverty mentality. You know, preachers should be poor and in every way modest. Preachers should be poor and in every way modest. Thank you for not saying amen when I made that statement. You know, those, those uh, board members in the little churches that say, Lord, you keep them humble, we'll keep them poor. I started to resent God for not letting me have the car. I would 
rationalize. Other people have nice cars. Why can't I have a fast car? It doesn't seem right. And finally, one day in prayer, I heard God say, why don't you ask me about the car? Now, you may, don't, don't take me lightly. I don't say one day God spoke to me and I heard this because that's serious business to me. And one day I heard God say, why don't you ask me about the car? And my, I reacted. I said, you know the reason I don't ask you about the car? Because you won't let me have one. Because preachers need to be poor and modest. In every category, that would be immodest. That's why I don't ask. And then the next thing I hear from God is, I'd be pleased for you to have the car. What? What is that? Hmm, very curious. So I bought the car. <laughs> Ask me about it later, I'd be glad to tell you. <laughs> oh. By the way, uh, now for 30 years, apparently I've been in a midlife crisis to, to one degree or another, and I've had off and on fast cars ever since. I have a fast car right now. Um, it will go zero to a, getting arrested in just about three seconds. <laughs> and th I have the fastest car I've ever had right now. Literally, from zero, from zero to breaking every speed limit in continental United States is about three seconds. And then after that, you can get arrested in three seconds and dead in about four. It's really fast. Let me just think about that for a minute. It makes me happy. <laughs> Beth and I dreamed about building our own house, and we were growing in our understanding of God's blessing. We were 48 years old at the time. And Beth and her business had seen many nice homes over the years, and we collected a number of ideas that we would incorporate in a custom home that we might build. And in the season of decision about whether or not to build a new home, and it was not easy for us because, you know, this, it's hard to overcome this poverty thing, at least it was for us. And we received encouragement from a couple who were in our church at the time, and this guy was a, a, a wood carver, and he had carved this delicate little uh, figurine, it was only about three inches tall, of a little gazelle you know, just kind of standing in place. It was beautiful, and I have it sitting in my office right now. And with it came a little card. Now, they didn't know we were deliberating about whether we should build a new house or not. They didn't know anything about that story, but they hand me this little figurine with a note, and the note simply said, God bless you, Pastor and Beth. May all of your dreams come true. That was really timely. Just a little thing like that was so encouraging. So friends, here's what we learn. You don't have to justify your purchases to anyone but God. If God gives you peace about buying something, don't worry about what anyone else thinks about it. A spirit of poverty or a spirit of pride must be replaced with a spirit of gratitude. That's the right spirit. There's your secret hidden in plain sight. So let me help you do some self-evaluation. When you think about your life situation, pride says, I deserve more. Poverty says, I should feel guilty. Gratitude says, thank you. Gratitude is an attitude of thankfulness that always acknowledges God's provision in your life. Thank you, God. Thank you so much. When someone says, wow, you have a nice house, and, the, and we did build that house, and we lived in it for 12 years. 
And it was beautiful. Literally, I mean, it was a custom. It was nice. I know some of you live in nice homes. It wasn't any nicer than the house we were in. Every single person who ever walked into our house said, wow, this is really nice. And they, were, they knew because it was. Custom this, custom that. It was beautiful. Really, really cool. So when someone says, you have a nice house, and everyone did, pride would say, yeah, we're going to build a bigger one next time. But, and poverty would say, well, you know, we, we got a good deal on it. It was a foreclosure. But gratitude says, thank you. And over the years, we lived in the house 12 years I mentioned, and Beth and I just re- rehearsed the same thing because everyone who came in the house for the first time said, wow, this is nice. And the response we, we would say is, thank you. We're thankful that God allows us to live here. Such a blessing to us. Thank you. When someone says, that's a nice suit you're wearing there. Pride says it's tailor-made. Poverty says it was half price. Gratitude says, when someone says, that's a nice car. Pride says, I've got three of them. Poverty says, it's a company car. Gratitude says, gratitude doesn't care what people think. It only cares what God thinks. So how about just telling the truth and be grateful, be thankful, a spirit of gratitude. Wow, the blessing of God has come. Thank God. What a beautiful thing. I was in Bombay, India many years ago. And there was a woman near the hostel where we were staying, and she sat on the street corner. She was a little shriveled up, a little woman, head covered. She had a little blue, plastic blue bowl, all mud encrusted and, and scarred on the bottom of it. And she would sit there, and every morning when we would leave the hostel, she would, she would beg. I'd walk by her, and she would beg. Beg for anything. That's how she subsisted. She was barely alive. The last day that we were there, we were were literally leaving for the airport, and I had exchanged a lot of dollars for some rupees, which is the currency in India. And so I had a fistful of rupees, maybe $50 worth of Indian currency. And I was either going to exchange it at the airport or not. It was 50 bucks. And I, I had this wad of rupees in my, in my pocket, and I walked by this woman, and I just thought, I just think I'll just give it to her. I reached in my pocket, and I knelt down there, and, and you know, she didn't know any English, and I just said, I know you don't understand me, but here's, here's something in Jesus' name. She looked down at what amounted to 50 bucks in her little bowl, and she began to moan, and she began to rock back and forth. And she just moaned. I can, I can both see her and hear her right now. And I just thought, wow. I got on the plane and it tormented me. I got home and that woman tormented me. I was trying to figure out what I was feeling and why I was feeling it. When you have so much and someone else has so little, there's, there's, reason, there's reason there to feel bad. And I feel guilty. 
that I have so much and someone else has so little. And so you feel bad about that. But that's not necessarily healthy. I mean, it's, it's good to be compassionate toward people in need. That's a Jesus spirit. But you shouldn't feel bad because you have more than someone else or less than another person. That's not right. And so I struggled with it. Why, why am I so distressed by this, this experience, this moment? You know, it's not, I, I don't feel guilty because I'm blessed, but I'm upset about this. What am I feeling? It took me a while because I'm not good with that. And about six months later, the light finally came on one morning. I was in prayer. And I finally realized why I had carried such a burden from that experience. And what I realized was the response, the reaction of that woman who had virtually nothing and now she had enough to sustain herself for some time. Her response was gratitude. Moaning and rocking back and forth like she can't get her mind around that amount of money. And it wasn't, it wasn't just her gratitude that had affected me so much. What affected me so much was I realized that not one time in my entire life had I been that thankful for anything. That's not right. When God blesses us, we should say thank you. I owe everything to you. Without you, I am nothing. Without you, I'm going nowhere. I have no life. I have no meaning. I have no purpose. I have no hope. But because of you, So when he says something like, hey, be a little more generous if you could. And we go, oh, I, you know, I got, I got a big vacation plan this year. And what, what are we doing? I was called by the president of Asbury Theological Seminary a handful of years ago and asked because I was within driving range of the seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky, as a member of the Board of Trustees, could you come and be in a meeting where a, a general contractor is going to be here to, to do a presentation on a new student housing project that we have in mind? And we, we need some official members of the board to be there. If you could be there, it would be helpful. I agreed. And I went there were about a dozen people in the room, the president of the seminary, some other uh, officials, four members of the Board of Trustees, and then a man and his wife that I was introduced to that day did not know them before, but he was a person of some means, apparently, who was interested in the seminary at that point. I was introduced to he and his wife, and he was a retired gentleman, diminutive inside, you know, um, nondescript physically. His wife was very pleasant, lovely. He had a speech impediment. He stuttered a bit, and he sat just to my left at the table, I noticed he had a little piece of paper, you know, just a tiny piece of paper and about a, a half-used lead pencil. And while this man was making the presentation from this design-build company, um, my new friend was just sitting next to me. I, he was just making scribbles. 
on his little piece of paper, and I just thought, well, that's interesting. At the end of the presentation, it lasted about 30, 35 minutes, uh, the president of this company paused and he said, and, and therefore the estimate for this project is going to be $43 million. Now, when you're in a room and someone says the project's going to cost $43 million, here's one of the rules of thumb in case you're ever in that room. One of the rules of thumb is the next person that talks after the announcement is going to cost $43 million, the next person that talks is the loser. So you don't get some corn cob from Indiana at the table saying, oh, well, 43, that's, I thought it was going to be a little bit higher than that. That should be no problem raising that money. That's, that's your loser at the table. So a lot of smart people at the table, and so everyone you hear, and the cost will be $43 million. And it's completely quiet because folks are smart. I'm glancing over at the president of the, of, the, of the seminary thinking if anybody talks, it should be him. Waiting, waiting. I'm reading his body language. He's got nothing to say. <laughs> and finally, my new friend just sitting to my left, he, uh, he kind of clears his, clears his throat and he looks up, you know, he's looking at his paper, and he just looks up, and he says, well, he said, I appreciate this presentation. It sounds like a reasonable estimate. He said, so I would like to commit $37 million to this project. Here's something I've learned, friends. A person's net worth doesn't tell you anything about his heart. Not a thing. Nothing. Some of the most materialistic people I've ever encountered were poor. By the same token, some of the most heavenly-minded, sold-out-for-God, non-materialistic people I know are quite wealthy. So God wants us to go after him. That is the heart of the matter. That is the whole point. And by the way, someone who can give $37 million to a project will not give his last $37 million to the project. And over the next decade, the same unassuming, lovely statesman, godly man and his beautiful wife have given over $80 million to the, to the institution. There are people who have means like that. And he's just an example of it. But his wealth is, is not an indication of his heart. His generosity is not his wealth. Some people have a lot and are generous. Some people have nothing and are miserly and tight-fisted. So the, the point of the matter is your attitude, your motive, and your heart. And ultimately, the only thing that matters, the true riches, the treasures of heaven, are people and our relationship with them and how we've influenced them for Jesus. Did you get it? Did you get it? Say, I got it. Let's pray. Dear God, please forgive me for being selfish, prideful, covetous. Please forgive me for listening to the unholy spirits of mammon and pride and poverty. Lord, I ask you to break them off of me, off of my family and off of my descendants and help me 
from this day forward to be a generous, extravagant giver to the kingdom of God so that men and women, boys and girls here and there, the true riches of this world will be touched for Jesus' sake and find their home in heaven. This I pray in the name of Jesus. And if you agree with it, say amen. Amen. Would you stand with us?